Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Fred Luchetti, Professor of Surgery at Loyola University. Dr. Luchetti was the senior author of a recent article which examined the association between rib fractures and mortality. The article titled, The Ribs or Not the Ribs, Which Influences Mortality, was published in the American Journal of Surgery, volume 202, pages 598 to 604. Rare is the trauma surgeon who hasn't transferred a patient with rib fractures out of the ICU only to find the patient in respiratory distress two to three days later. As such, I thought that this article helped highlight this vulnerable group and point out that this seemingly innocuous injury can, in fact, be lethal. With that, then, thank you for joining us, Dr. Luchetti. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, let's start by just asking you to briefly summarize your article and what you found. Yeah, I've been intrigued with the uh, impact of thoracic trauma on outcomes for my entire career. And what my colleague Larry Reed and I decided to do was use the National Trauma Data Bank because of the large number of patients and the quality of the data to investigate the relationship between rib fractures and outcome for patients. And as most folks know, the NTDB is good for looking at mortality. So what we wanted to do was stratify the data by age and number of rib fractures and associated injuries and do linear regression to uh, see if there's an association. And the long and short of it, some 90-some thousand patients were in this study uh, with rib fractures, and then we came away with two important messages, I think, for your author, your audience. Uh, first is that uh, with isolated rib fractures and no other injuries, the mortality ranges between 2 and 3 percent, independent of the number of rib fractures. So the level 1 and level 2 trauma centers are doing a great job with uh, taking care of these patients with just isolated rib fractures. On the flip side, when you dial in age, and everybody knows that age is a confounding factor for outcome and mortality goes up as we age, but in addition to that, uh, the mortality with rib fractures is directly related to the associated intrathoracic injuries, and in this study, we define that as an AIS greater than two. And so let's take <clears throat> each of those points in turn. Um, there have been lots of studies in the past looking at this association. <clears throat> those studies seem to suggest that the number of ribs broken, irrespective of other injury, uh, is predictive of mortality, but there were variable cut points as to how many ribs you have to break before you actually have a uh, high chance of death. Some of the studies found as, as few as three ribs uh, predict death. Your study actually didn't. Your study found five ribs or more, and really, as you said, it was the concomitant injury that they showed up with that resulted in their ultimate death, not necessarily the rib fracture itself. One of the impetuses for the study was the uh, Lee study from 20-some years ago conducted in Maryland, a population-based study that you're referencing with the three or more rib fractures as an indicator of increased mortality. And clearly, that's been translated into pre-hospital guidelines as well as trauma center guidelines for transfer. And one of the frustrations I've had is that it's 20 years old, it's not been revisited. So what we're trying to achieve with this study is not to change pre-hospital triage criteria, but rather inter-hospital triage criteria. And a lot of patients would be transferred from lower level trauma centers to a higher level of care just because they had three fractures. Now what the audience needs to understand too is, and they know this, that the 
fastest growing segment of the American population is the geriatric patients. The most common fracture now in an elderly gentleman, i.e. elderly over 65, is actually a rib fracture from falling at home, a low energy impact. So what we're trying to convey with this uh, research is that a rib fracture is a rib fracture, but not all rib fractures are equal. Low energy rib fractures probably don't need to burden the <coughs> level one trauma centers for care and can be cared at level two and probably even level three trauma centers without increased mortality. And in fact, in your discussion, that's that you give two case examples on your recommendations. One is a young female uh, who's multi-system injured, hemoneumothorax, pulmonary contusion, broken ribs, and also broken tibia. <clears throat> the other one is a uh, more, uh, more senior individual who has isolated broken ribs. And then you specifically say that really it's the younger individual with multi-system injury who would benefit from level one transfer, level one or level two trauma transfer, as opposed to the older patient who conceivably fell because he or she has some other medical comorbidities. And yet you, you suggest that it's the younger person who would benefit more from the limited trauma resources of a high-level center. That's correct. As you look at resource consumption... <laughs> I think the deception to the initial uh, provider care for either one of those patients will be they're looking at them and they look at this elderly patient that's splinting a little bit from rib fractures that can, can probably be controlled with non-steroidal uh, medications as well as intercostal nerve blocks or even a uh, epidural catheter if it's uh, multiple levels. In contrast, the young lady with a hemoneumothorax three rib fractures and a tibia fracture, she's going to be laying in bed. And initially, she looks great because she can compensate uh, for the pain from the rib fractures. <coughs> Prior studies that I've done, which were prospective randomized, uh, looking at pulmonary function with multiple rib fractures, have actually shown that initially, the first 24 hours, patients are able to compensate and maintain their vital capacity as well as their maximal inspiratory force. However, with time, and this just intuitively makes sense, that it, with time, as the pain sets in, then the fractures now start to move a little bit more because the muscles are no longer spasming and splinting them, the pain goes up over the next 72 hours and the pulmonary function goes down and that leads to the increased rate of intubation as well as increased rate of pneumonia. And so what should the EMS provider do when he rolls onto the scene and the patient's complaining of some chest wall pain? Right now, there's a distinct push to get those people into the trauma center. I think that's a good, good triage criteria in the pre-hospital setting. However, our goal here is to, let, to shed more insight and more information on what happens once they arrive at the hospital. Now, clearly the NTDB includes level one and level two trauma centers. But again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I don't know that somebody with just a couple rib fractures, three rib fractures isolated with no hemoneumo from a fall against a stationary object requires a transfer up the chain to a higher level of care. Uh, so our, our message here is not to impact on the pre-hospital triage criteria, rather it's the inter-hospital transfer of these patients. And then what do you do in terms of ICU allocation once the patient shows up? Who goes, who goes to the ICU? Well, that's an excellent question. And, and uh, let's take the two case scenarios that uh, we just discussed a minute ago. My bias would be both of those patients should be triaged from the ED into the ICU for observation because of the complexity of both of their physiologies. The young lady, we know she's going to fatigue. She's not going to get out of bed because she has this tibia fracture for a couple days, and she's going to be condemned to just in a semi-upright position. So she'll, that will embarrass her pulmonary toilet 
and lead to bad outcome in four or five days. On the flip side, the elderly patient with isolated rib fractures, again, many studies have shown that there's increased mortality uh, in these patients, and age is an independent predictor, so they warrant going into the ICU for at least 24, 48 hours of observation to make sure that they're not deteriorating. I think it's uh, a lot of folks would say, we'll just put them on the floor, and if they get into trouble, then we'll triage them into the ICU. That practice seems to consume more resources, in my experience over the years, uh, rather than being proactive and watching them in the ICU initially and then triaging out of the ICU. Yeah, I think that's a very relevant point, particularly in the uh, more restricted uh, work hours of the residents where there's just continuous handoffs. And we've also found that these are the exact patients who fall through the cracks. Now, your um, article was retrospective in design, so you, you, I know you can't necessarily answer this question definitively, but once you excluded the patients who died within the first 24 hours, and we're really looking at the cohort that now live for a period of time, what caused that particular cohort to ultimately die? Yeah, unfortunately, you bring up an excellent point, and that's obviously a weakness of the study. And we, those that have used the National Trauma Data Bank uh, for research, knows that it know that it just does not include cause of death. So that is a weakness. One would assume, though, that as the let's take for instance our recommendation that five rib fractures, more than five rib fractures, is the break point for mortality with chest wall trauma. Um, those are that's a devastating amount of force to the torso of a patient, any patient, and it has a high association uh, with uh, intrathoracic injuries, and most likely the cause of death was related to those intrathoracic injuries. And <clears throat> interestingly, you pointed out in your paper that the highest predictors of death were ones that one would actually um, assume. So we had. Uh, uh, great vessel injury in the mediastinal area, pulmonary hyalur injuries, and then significant lung parenchymal disruption with associated hemorrhage, 20% blood volume hemorrhage, huge hemothorax. It's interesting that those factors are somewhat self-intuitive, but then if you stand back and you say, well, that's the degree of force it takes to kill someone uh, for thoracic injury, it really puts into perspective that the other causes must be related more to just chest wall bellows failure, lack of ventilation, um, as opposed to some other cause of their actual demise. In other words, you have to have devastating chest injury to die. That's correct. And again, that's the message we're trying to convey it. It does make intuitive sense, but none of the literature that I've reviewed in the past has made that association that it is a major intrathoracic injury. It's not the hemoneumothorax that's going to kill the patients. It's the embarrassment of their pulmonary reserve and their pulmonary function. So let's go uh, beyond your paper now and really just kind of uh, glean some expertise from you. With that last caveat in mind, there's renewed interest in plating rib fractures. What's the role of plating for rib fractures? I think that's an excellent question, and I am, uh, in my general surgery training, I actually had the opportunity to do a lot of uh, acute uh, fracture fixation in our training. So this predated the intramedullary nailing. We were actually doing what's called a dynamic compression plate back then on femurs and tibias. And it was amazing to me that, and orthopedic surgeons know this all the time, it was amazing to me that once you stabilize the fracture, the patient's pain diminishes dramatically. Uh, and it's always been intriguing to me that here we have 12 ribs on either side of the chest, and we treat rib fractures because they're small bones, I guess, uh, as if they're a nonchalant nothing fracture. And in fact, 
I think the current literature that's coming out advocating for stabilization of chest wall uh, instability with plating, and now there's a device that's an intramedullary nail for rib fractures, I think that that will revolutionize our management of these devastating injuries, and it will help reduce mortalities for these uh, high-risk patients. By so I, I'm an advocate for plating. I think that there's nice studies out of Europe that show the benefit and reduce mortality. I think there's some prospective studies underway here in the States that will also reinforce that literature. Are you uh, plating patients who, or are you suggesting we should plate patients who have more severe chest injury beyond just the rib fracture? So those who have a severe pulmonary contusion, um, et cetera. I think that the pulmonary contusion is a whole separate uh, physiologic disruption that you need to be uh, cautious on when you would do surgical intervention on. I, I think the limiting factor or the guiding the guideline for when to intervene for chest wall stabilization will be twofold. Number one will be pain, which is there with every breath the patient takes. And secondly, the uh, liberation from a ventilator. So a patient that does have a pulmonary contusion, that now they've res they're resolving the physiologic uh, mismatch and the VQ mismatch at the pulmonary level and their oxygenation is improving, now they're tagged to the uh, ventilator just because of the embarrassment of their pulmonary function with this flail chest. That patient, after three or four days of omission, probably should go to the operating room, have their chest wall stabilized, and then I think what you'll see is within a couple of days, they'll liberate from the ventilator. And then uh, on a similar note, I suppose, what is your thoughts on uh, rule of tracheostomy for patients with severe chest wall injury? That's an excellent question, too, and you've done your homework. I'm impressed. Um, Twenty years ago, I was involved in one of the early studies that advocated for early tracheostomy with major injuries, particularly with uh, pulmonary insults. I think in today's world, uh, as we've advanced care in general and we understand the physiology, the pathophysiology, excuse me, of uh, chest wall injury and underlying pulmonary injury, I think that tracheostomy can still be uh, done selectively. And I've become a little more conservative uh, with early trachs uh, as I've gone through my career and gained more experience. I think the morbidity from leaving someone orally intubated just from the endotracheal tube in reference to tracheal stenosis is so low with two weeks that there's no rush to trach someone. And you have to almost make it on an individual basis and look at the constellation of the injuries. I think there's ample data that says that in a severe traumatic brain injury, early trach really does liberate the patient from the vent and get them out of the hospital quicker. Uh, short from that, a, a patient with severe chest trauma, uh, I think you need to take it on an individual basis. And then if you're going to incorporate uh, early rib fracture stabilization into your practice, that will help liberate them. So I would probably wait at least a week with severe chest trauma. And that's interesting because you're essentially trading um, their mean early tracheostomy as a means for vent liberation for internal fixation of the rib, rib fracture itself, plus minus epidurals and intercostal catheters and whatnot as a means to liberate. And that, that sounds uh, you know, very exciting, very interesting to look at future studies to see if this really bears out. One could spare the patient a whole tracheostomy. Absolutely. <clears throat> so then to kind of summarize and put it all together, here I am, a, uh, a junior trauma surgeon, and uh, I admitted a, uh, uh, let's say, 60-year-old patient, may, may or may not have some comorbidities, uh, with 
three or four rib fractures, less than the five that your study found as a cutoff for mortality. Where do I start with this patient? That patient's down in the trauma bay. I've, I've resuscitated him, no uh, hemonumothoraces, but three or four rib fractures. And these were sustained <clears throat> after, a, just for our discussion, let's say after a head-on high-energy impact sure. crash. Yeah, I think uh, most folks would agree that that patient probably ought to be triaged up to the uh, ICU for at least a 12, 24-hour observation because more often than not, they will uh, get into pulmonary trouble as the pain sets in with every breath. Um, and I don't think there's any role for uh, placing those patients on the floor. Now, I think something that we haven't spoken about that probably ought to be mentioned and taken into consideration is the actual uh, anatomy of the rib fractures. And what I'm referencing there is that if it's just a crack and there's no loss of a, uh, apposition of the bony edges and there's good alignment, those rib fractures, again, with intercostal nerve blocks using the long-acting local anesthetics, uh, you can control their pain on the floor. It would take a good resident about 15, 20 minutes to administer those blocks twice a day. Uh, so if your ICU is full, then you need to have a backup plan on how you're going to manage that patient on the floor. But in general, I think <clears> that the <throat> best place in most hospitals that I've worked at for close monitoring, vigorous pulmonary toilet, and uh, scheduled analgesic administration would be in the ICU center. And then what do you do for the patient who's got a displaced rib fracture? Still no hemonumothoraces, not intubated. Yeah, that patient would definitely go into the <laughs> ICU because the, now you have loss of apposition, there's stripping of the periosteum, uh, there's stripping of the intercostal muscles. And those patients, the pain will escalate, uh, at least in my studies, it'll escalate over the next couple of days and embarrass their pulmonary function. How do you try to control their pain initially before you plate them? I am, uh, in the majority of patients, I'm a huge advocate for epidural analgesia. I think it just makes sense. It's an easy way to deliver continuous uh, uh, local analgesia without the systemic effects of uh, the long-acting narcotics that we usually give parenterally. And so this would be a potential candidate for subsequent fixation in the next one or two days uh, for pain control and liberation from analgesia, liberation from the ICU, et cetera. And, and again, if you go back and do your homework and looking at some of the earlier studies from 20, 30 years ago uh, with bad chest uh, disruption and loss of apposition of the rib fractures, long term, these patients have a huge embarrassment of their pulmonary function. They get into a restrictive state on their chest wall. And so I think there's many reasons to do what you just suggested and, and proceed in the first couple of days to uh, early stabilization with plating or IM nailing of the uh, rib fractures. Well, I got to say, this has been, a, um, I think, an excellent discussion of a very common disease process that I think is routinely under triaged. Uh, and we talked about the, the uh, pitfalls of, uh, of putting these patients on the floor only to see what happens. Um, we've been speaking today with Dr. Fred Luchetti regarding the association between rib fractures and mortality. I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to share your views with us and compliment you on your ongoing work uh, in this field. I certainly look forward to reading many more articles uh, on this topic from your group. This uh, concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.